Hello, Duncan Green here on a beautiful sunny morning in London. I'm sitting at my desk. My cat is sitting on top of all my papers. So if you hear any cat noises, it's not me, OK? It's the cat. Um, I'm here to bring you up to date with the last week of the From Poverty to Power blog, which has been incredibly busy and fun. So um, let's get on with it. Um, started off with the traditional links I liked. Um, a weird video by the China's state news agency, which is sort of trying to do satire and humour and basically take the piss out of Donald Trump and the US response to COVID, but does it in this incredibly clunky, naff way. Um, so quite a collector's item, I think. I'm not sure they should really try satire. Uh, not sure it's their strong point. Other other links in the, uh, in the roundup. Um, <clears throat> Centre for Global Development, uh, based in Washington, but also with offices in London, is having a very good COVID crisis, I have to say. Lots of really interesting material on, on there. They've just recruited Ranil Desanayake from... Um, Diffid, um, who does a brilliant roundup every week of economists, economics and Africa links. They've already recruited Dave Evans, who does those amazing syntheses of 100 conference papers in a single blog. So they're kind of becoming the go-to place for human hoovers who just hoover up uh, information and process it and, uh, uh, and synthesize it for people. One other post worth drawing out, I think, a lot being written now on Zoom fatigue, on why are people feeling so exhausted after several hours of Zoom conversations um, and the, uh, <clears throat> the, the psychology that behind that. One top tip I got recently was that you can turn off your own picture for yourself without turning it off for everybody else. And that means you don't have to look at yourself, which if you're having a bad hair situation which is very common in the in the lockdown um can be quite a relief not to see yourself on screen for several hours a day but anyway that's enough on links i liked the next post was by a um ugandan surgeon and epidemiologist olive kobusunye and it was the star post of the week no doubt no question it absolutely got massive uh, attention and hits um and what she uh, basically said is that uganda so far um has done pretty well uh, yeah, the, the the government took swift action. It had no deaths at the time Olive was writing. I'm not sure if it's had any since. Um, but behind this veneer is a less rosy story, as she puts it. Um, so she then sort of digs into the politics of, the, of Uganda's response and talks about the massive government structure and patronage system. And I'll read out a bit a bit from 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 her post. Uganda has one of the largest government administrations per population in the world. For its 41 million people, the country has 80 ministers, 426 members of parliament, more than 400 salaried presidential advisers, and layer upon layer of bureaucracy from there down, including a special representative of the president in every one of the 134 districts called the Resident District Commissioner, or RDC. It was to this rather unwieldy structure that the pandemic containment task fell once it was confirmed that the virus had entered the country. A national task force was hastily put together, headed by a military general. The Ministry of Health, which had seemingly wasted two months of lead time, jumped into action, barely funded, understaffed, poorly equipped, and heading into a hurricane with no roof over their heads. The President saw fit to entrust the district-level management and substantial budget for the pandemic into the hands of the RDCs, these presidential appointees at district level. 
beginning with the authority to determine who could move and what patients could benefit from the scarce ambulances. So basically the medics have been completely sidelined. Everything's been uh, run through the patronage network of, from the president downwards. And Olive is very, very worried about what's going to happen. She talked about the lock chaos of the lockdown, which is often violently enforced. And there's some very startling images from police beating people for being out on the streets. She talks about the potential for corruption. For example, a 600 million euro loan from the European Union with almost no scrutiny on how it's spelt, uh, spent. And I've got a couple of posts on this whole anti-corruption and COVID question going up next week. And a chaotic food relief process. Clearly hit a nerve, judging by the number of clicks from Uganda and from readers in Uganda and comments on the blog and all the rest of it. So really interesting exactly what we want FP2P to, to do is to air these kind of concerns from the ground about what's going on in different countries. Next post was by Claire Malamed, an old friend of mine who is now CEO of the Global Partnership for Sustain Sustainable Development Data. And uh, so her organization is basically trying to get governments and others around the world to use better quality data, to not pay too much for it, uh, and to do data-informed or data-based policymaking. And she's sort of partly celebrating. She's saying, look, you know, we're all data geeks now. Everybody's looking at these log graphs and trying to unravel what's going on. Um, and, and, you know, data has suddenly become absolutely central to the public conversation around COVID. And she draws five lessons for... Um, wider lessons from the this this data this data kind of frenzy around um uh around covid firstly she says you know we still have to invest in the basics she says it should be a matter of global shame that the causes of more than half of all deaths in the world still go unrecorded every year so we don't even know what people are dying of so, yeah, let's not get too sophisticated. It's just we need to get the basics sorted out. The second one, a second lesson from the COVID uh, experience is that it shows that public interest is there if you get the cons right. So, as she puts it, reports of the death of facts and experts were greatly exaggerated. Actually, people do want information. They do want data. But it has to be communicated in the right way. Third is... You have to trust the public. You release the numbers even if they're not perfect and you get a conversation going and that has worked very well in the countries that have done it. So trust the public with data. Fourth is you really can't duck the issue of data privacy anymore. Um, the whole debate over contact tracing apps and how much of our data is going to be accessible to the government or to um, official bodies means that that issue of data privacy cannot go away anymore. And finally... Use data to make decisions. Um, her, her, her conclusion is better data after COVID-19 isn't about one thing. It's a slow, incremental process of creating a system based on good law and respect for rights, fully embedded into political cultures and expectations, attuned to market realities and trusted by the public. So that's her view of a sort of rosy future for data coming out of the COVID experience. The next post was about adaptive management. Remember adaptive management? It's something I used to write a lot about before um, the world went crazy. Um, and this is a piece uh, I wrote with um, Jane Lonsdale and Rosita Armitage, who work for the Centre for Good Governance in Myanmar, which is a, uh, a DFID-funded project run by Cardno, um, the, the management consultant. 
And um, this is how adaptive are adaptive management programs in a crisis like COVID. So they were looking at what what is it about their program, which was set up to be adaptive, that actually worked when the crisis hit. So what, when the crisis hit, and I'm an advisor to um, CGG, so I've been working with them quite a lot over the last year or so. So I've had a sort of bit of a... Uh, not a ringside seat to watch all this going on. And what happened when the crisis hit was that the expats uh, evacuated um, very quickly, uh, were asked to evacuate. Um, the office closed a week later, so all the national staff were moved to working from home. All their plans were up in the air. Their ways of working didn't work. They were working through face-to-face -face meetings, public gatherings. None of those things were possible anymore. So they had to pivot very quickly, um, and they did this, you know, uh, within a matter of days, and they identified um, five factors um, which make it possible to do this well. And they th they think the overall lesson is it depends what you have in place before the crisis hits. The first one is staff who get it, um, both expats and national staff who um, are able to think on their feet, able to think politically, are well networked and can take advantage of new opportunities. And the example they gave was one where one of their national staff, within the, a couple of days of um, the crisis hitting Myanmar, thought that he could help the government by helping them do a decent animation for a public safety announcement. He, off his own bat, got a friend of his who was an animator. They went up to Nepidor, the capital. They sat down with the, his contacts in government. He was already very well networked, came up with a script. And from that first idea to um, the uh, final animation took, three, took less than three days. It, that was put on all the government websites and it basically earned them huge political capital and trust with government. It wasn't, you know, doing a PSA, a public safety announcement, was not really their main job. They work on local governance issues. But it, uh, uh, but it created a situation where when they go back to a bunch of government agencies in the future, the government agencies will say, you are our friends, we trust you. Flexible design. The, the, the CGG was set up to be flexible from the beginning. It's not trapped in the straitjacket of lo log logical frameworks, log frames. So they're able very quickly to, to move and change indicators and change programs. That was all part of the design. Third, really important to have a broad set of relationships because in one of these crises, people who you have relationships with, uh, the ones that may prove to be most useful may not be the obvious ones, may not be the ones you were working with before the crisis. So if you're broadly networked at different levels of government, national, local, regional, um, and you have, you, you've got connections in a bunch of different ministries, then you're much more able to roll and dance with the system than if you only have one particular set of relationships. Fourth is donor support, but also donor pressure. Um, they say that you know, it's very important that DFID put a lot of pressure on them early on to say you can't carry on. We want to see what your new plans are um, and we want to see it quickly. And they said that was very helpful having that pressure on them. And then the fifth is a flexible working style that what they've established now is basically a 24 hour working system because they have somebody in Australia, somebody in, 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 in Britain. Uh, a bunch of people still in Myanmar. So they have a sort of 24-hour rolling cycle where somebody will work here and have something ready for more, the next morning in Myanmar and then somebody in Australia will then take it up from there. So it's actually proved quite interesting the way they've set themselves up since, uh, since the crisis hit. And they think some of the results that have got, come from this adaptive style is breaking down silos which existed before, for example, between health and governance. Um, the cat is about to knock over the... Uh, um, Tape recorder, please don't do that, cat. Um, 
building trust uh, with uh, people in government, as I mentioned. For the first time, they've been able to work with the ethnic armed organisations, which actually run large parts of Myanmar. Um, and they've had, they've had new progress on inclusion and, and sort of found new entry points for discussing who's been left out of the response and all the rest of it. Finally, uh, the final post of the week, sorry, I was put off by the cat there, but the cat has now gone, so that's good, um, was uh, a webinar I chaired last week uh, for the Africa Centre at the LSE uh, on how will Africa have changed one year from now? It was my first experience of chairing something on Zoom, and I have to say, I really enjoyed it. It was hosted by the LSE's Firoz Lalji Centre for Africa, and it had a great panel, which is obviously the most important thing. So they had uh, Dagan Ali, Alex Deval, Kiran Jovan Putra, and Vanessa Munga. So a really varied backgrounds. You had medics, you had um, women's empowerment, you had grassroots CSOs, civil society organisations, academics, all swapping notes and, 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 and swapping ideas on what will last from this in terms of um, uh, the uh, the COVID experience? So I'll start with, a, and I have a couple of quotes on the blog just from things I really liked from the transcript, but you can watch the whole thing online on YouTube. Uh, it's on the um, Africa Centre website. So Dagan Ali is the executive director of Adesso, an African NGO. Um, and she said, what we're seeing in Somalia is a huge volunteer effort from the diaspora, from community workers, doctors, businesses, coming together to see what they can do. Doctors in Minnesota offering telemedicine advice to people in Somalia. That sense of volunteerism and self-reliance could lead to a stronger sense of civil society. We don't have to be beggars waiting for the northerners to save us from our problems. And I've seen that with, in many other situations, an incredible Somali diaspora which does enormous amounts of work. And the other quote from that post, which I, I really liked, was from Alex Duval, who's a LSE academic. Um, and he was talking about the, you know, he was responding to me talking about the cracks in the system and saying, but and in the humanitarian system and saying some of the cracks in the system are actually a very recent creation. In the early 2000s, Kofi Annan, the UN Secretary General, had an initiative on the triple crisis, HIV, AIDS, food insecurity and lack of government capacity. That was actually pretty effective. The UN system was much more functional then. And President George W. Bush put in put in place with the WHO a pandemic preparedness system and all of government response in the US and internationally. There was a whole set of intergovernmental preparedness guidelines, but it was all dismantled by our austerity measures in the UK and the current administration in the US. It's not that we were unprepared, it's that we were de-prepared. If this pandemic had struck five years ago, we would have been much more able to cope with it than we are now. That's powerful stuff. And on that um, sober note, I shall uh, leave you. Have a good weekend. Talk next week. Bye.